The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Thank you, God, that we recognize this time of year that you are coming as our King. And so, Lord, as we look back on some of the kings of the past prior uh, to your coming, the kings of your people, we pray that that would just magnify what a great and mighty and wonderful king that you are. We ask, God, that you would uh, use this time to prepare our hearts for uh, your coming and your coming again. But uh, particularly, Lord, let us see the faith of your prophets. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning to you all. Hail and hearty uh, coming out on this uh, chilly morning. Thanks so much for being here. Um, so today we are looking at 1 Kings uh, chapter 16 through 19 and 2 Kings 25. Now, I might have published 1 Kings 25 uh, originally, and if that's the case, then I apologize. That was a typographical error and one that is not without significance. Uh, if you're looking at I looked at the passage and I thought, why is this one of the essential 100 passages? And I realized, double-checked it and realized I'd gotten the wrong book, Second uh, Kings. So um, we are really going to spend most of our times on uh, this morning on uh, the story of Elijah. But uh, the, the title this morning is Told You So, and that is because the prophets have, are repeatedly speaking to the faithless kings uh, of Israel. So what you need to know, if you were with us last week, we saw Solomon, and we really saw the best of Solomon. We saw the magnificence of his kingdom. We saw the glory and the, the wealth and the, uh, the peace on every side. We saw Solomon's prayer for wisdom. Uh, but what you may know is that Solomon, towards the end of his life, he had so many wives that wanted so much from him uh, that they... Uh, they, he turned away in, from his faith, or really allowed and began to integrate Baal worship into, um, uh, into the worship of Israel, and particularly the worship of, of God. And it was sort of a syncretism that, that was just not acceptable. And Solomon dies, and uh, his son Rehoboam becomes the king. And the, remember... Solomon is the one who said, raise up a child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. And I uh, think I joked last week that I take great comfort in Rehoboam, who was a disaster. Uh, so the, right, right as a part of what we see is a part of the wealth of Solomon was that he taxed the people really heavily. And the people uh, came to Rehoboam and said, hey, you know, why don't you ease up on your dad's tax? And... Rehoboam said, give me three days, I'm going to think about this, consult some folks, and, and, um, and, then, and then I'll get back to you. Come back in three days. So he consults Solomon's counselors, uh, the old, old men, it says. And they say, if you give them what they want, they will be uh, committed to you forever. He said, yeah, yeah, thanks. And then he goes uh, to his friends, the ones he grew up with, who he has sort of just appointed as his, his counselors. And he says, well, what should I do? And they say, you tell those people my little finger is thicker than my father's thigh. And so that's what he did. And um, he said, I will not let up on your taxes. I'm going to make your life tougher, you ingrateful people asking for uh, relief from your king. He just wanted to prove himself, show his strength. And what happens is that... the ten tribes of what we would call northern Israel, it's north of Jerusalem, 
uh, I intended actually, I meant to bring the, uh, the whiteboard in here and kind of draw it for you. But if you can imagine where Jerusalem is, Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee, Jerusalem's right to the west of the Dead Sea, and everything north of that, all the, those ten tribes say, what part do we have with this king? And they split, and they uh, named somebody named Jeroboam as their king. Jeroboam had been an opponent of Solomon's and opposed to his monarchy. And so Jeroboam becomes uh, the king of northern Israel, and Judah and Benjamin uh, are, uh, remain as, as they're just called Judah, essentially, and, um, and Rehoboam is their king. So the kingdom of Israel divides. And this is a really significant moment in the history of, of Israel with the unity they had under uh, coming, well, coming into the Promised Land and then certainly under uh, even Saul, but especially David and Solomon, is now split. And, um, and what we see after this is, is a succession of mostly faithless kings. Uh, Rehoboam's grandson Asa actually is a very uh, faithful king in Judah, a decent king. But the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of the north, there it's just the Wild West. It is uh, a series of kings and coups and, and conspiracies. Nobody really reigns a long time until Ahab. You know, you've probably heard of Ahab and his uh, beautiful wife, Jezebel. Um, Jezebel is a, sort of a, a, an, the epitome of, of pagan faithlessness. Uh, and, and she, well, she was faithful. She was not faithful to God. She was faithful to Baals. And, um, and so uh, she rules with an iron fist even more significantly than her husband, uh, Ahab. And, and so what I want to do is I want to read uh, to you uh, the story of uh, two of my favorite stories and, uh, in the Old Testament, or right back to back. And that is uh, Elijah's defeat of the prophets of Baal. And then what happens right after that, and that's the still small voice that we, we've heard about. So those are the two stories that we're really going to focus in on uh, this morning. So um, just a, a glimpse from 1 Kings 16, starting with the 29th verse. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. So Asa is still king in Judah, southern tribes. Uh, northern tribes, Ahab begins to reign. And he reigned in Israel, over Israel and Samaria for 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So he, he made a political marriage, and then and in order to appease his new political alliance, he begins to worship Baal uh, as well. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which we, he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, which is a, a worship pole for the Baals. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So, when, in the New Testament... We see Jesus meeting with a Samaritan woman. Uh, or we hear about the Good Samaritan. What the teacher, the preacher, will always say about that is the Samaritans were 
looked on very poorly because of the syncretism and the long, long history. They, they weren't true Israelites anymore. They'd intermarried with the other uh, nations around them. And, uh, and so they were looked at as um, diminutive at best. Not, uh, they, had, they and their ancestors had departed. And if you remember in John chapter 4, when, um, when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and she says, well, our fathers say that God is to be worshipped on this mountain over here, but you say He's to be worshipped in Jerusalem. So Samaritans were looked at as a lesser race. And, um, and this is the beginning of that. Uh, Ahab's worship of Baal in Samaria, which is, if you were to look, Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee, so right in between those to the west, between the Jordan River and uh, the Mediterranean Sea, Samaria, right in the middle of that. And that became a region where good Jews don't go uh, later on. But that starts right here with, um, with the worship of Baal from Ahab. And, um, and so, uh, because of his wife, particularly because of his wife, Jezebel. So we get to chapter 17, and Elijah the Tishbite shows up. What is a Tishbite? Somebody from the house of Tish. And, um, but he just, he just shows up. It, there's, no, there's no precursor. He just all of a sudden comes uh, here. But he is one of the great prophets of the whole Old Testament. In fact, so great is he that we see him at the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Uh, when, remember when Jesus turns this radiant white and Moses shows up and Elijah. Uh, Moses representing the law of God and Elijah the representative of the prophets. And so Elijah is a very, very significant character in the history of Israel. And what uh, Elijah says to Ahab is that it's not going to rain anymore until I say it is. That is crazy, right? It's crazy. I mean, what if I showed up to you and said, hey, if y'all don't get your act together, I'm not going to let it rain. You would run me off. You would call the bishop and you would say, we got a real problem and this guy needs to be in the mental uh, institution. So, um, but they didn't have mental institutions. Uh, so, uh, so Ahab, I don't think he probably took him real seriously, but it didn't rain after that. And it got pretty serious. And so what we have uh, leading up to the, the showdown with the, at Mount Carmel is we have a, a couple of instances just to show us that Elijah is in fact walking with God in a particular and unique ex- sort of elevated way than most people. Um, God takes him away and says, there's not going to be water, but I'm going to send you to the, um, this sort of a spring. I'm going to hide you out there and the ravens are going to come and bring you meat. And they do, every day, according to, to the text. And then you might know, once that spring dries up, then uh, God sends him to the widow of Zarephath. And she is unnamed. That's just what she's called, the widow of Zarephath. And she comes, she, Zarephath is, is not an Israelite town. And he comes and, and says, um, hey, make me a cake and give me some water. And she says, I have hardly any flour left. We're, we're going to just make a cake and then lay down and die. So I don't have much to give you. He says, well, do that, but make me a cake first. <laughs> so he was a real pastor, this guy. He was just a real, real loving pastoral heart. And, um, and so she does. It's amazing. Anyway, he, what he says is, uh, if you do this, you'll never run out of oil and flour. 
and she has enough. They eat and they eat and they eat and they just on and on. And, and it's a miracle. It's, and so we're seeing that what God has spoken through Elijah comes true. And the way that you tell a prophet is true, is a, is a true prophet of God, is that their words come true, right? So that we have that. Then again, her son dies. The widow's son dies. And Elijah says, uh, no problem. Or she comes in and says, what have you done? Why, you know, why have you let this? I gave you bread and you've let this happen or whatever. He says, he, he lays down on top of the dead son three times and life comes back into him. Just like you do, right? Just a very weird, just a, you know, very weird, but life comes back into him and he gets up and, and, uh, and so we see again, God's hand is upon Elijah in a very particular and unique way. So, um, so then after, it says, chapter 18, after many days, the word uh, of the Lord came to Elijah, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. Which would have been a fearsome thing, fearful thing for Ahab to hear because he is the guilty one, the troubler of Israel, Ahab calls him, that, that has caused it not to rain upon the earth. Well, that's kind of what Elijah said, even though, of course, it's God who has not allowed it to rain uh, on, upon Israel. Their crops are all dry. Everybody's just uh, starving. And, um, and so they... There's a, a series of events uh, speaking with uh, Obadiah. I don't think that's the prophet Obadiah, although it, it might be. I have to ch- double check that uh, on, a, on a week that we didn't have a lot of nativity. And, um, the, um, so what happens, and I just think this is one of the most amazing and wonderful stories uh, in the Old Testament. So Ahab uh, saw Elijah. Ahab said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So you've got 950 uh, false prophets coming, and uh, Elijah believes he is the only true prophet. And, uh, And in fact... Uh, Obadiah has uh, some other prophets that, he, that he's hidden. Uh, we'll hear about them in just a minute. But the priests, um, of all these priests of Baal and Asherah come together. They sent to all the people of Israel and they all gathered in the prophets to get, with the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal, then follow Him. In other words, pick a side, people. Right? You're, you're going through all the motions. You're doing the sacrifices. You're saying the liturgy. Uh, but you're also making sacrifices to the Baals in hopes that they will send you crops, uh, etc. Gods of fertility, all sorts of different things. And the people did not answer a word. And Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. And we see this about Elijah. He, he's, su- I mean, he's super anointed. And yet he kind of has a, a, he has a very almost depressive uh, opinion of, of, of the faith of Israel because we do see that there are others. We've, we've just heard, although I didn't read it to you, that um, there are other faithful prophets out there. But Elijah says, I'm the only one. Um, and Baal's prophets are 450. Let two bulls be given to us. 
And let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, and, but put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire on it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, He is, the, he is God. So we're just going to put it to the test. You say you call on your God, I say I call on my God, let's just cut a bull in half, and see which one gets lit on fire first. <laughs> awesome! <laughs> And hope the cops don't show up. And then the people answered, people answered, great, it's well spoken. And Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull, prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it. And they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's musing, or he is relieving himself, or maybe he's on a journey. It's in Scripture, folks. It's right here. I'm telling you, they can make moves out of this stuff. They don't, they don't need... Anyway... He's on a journey. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe your God is sleeping and he must be awakened. And they cried aloud and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. I mean, just, and at midday, uh, as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but no, there was no voice. This is so indicting. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. He's a false god. He was just an empty void. Then Elijah said to the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Apparently, there was a broken altar that uh, Ahab had torn down in order to erect the altar of Baal. And so he repairs the altar. He took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And then he made a trench around the altar, as great as would have contained two seahs of seed. And a seah was a measurement, and it's really not that much. But it was enough to, to be a, a sort of moat around this altar. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And then he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And he said, they did it, and he said, do it a third time. Now, I want you to think about this. They, the reason they are going toe-to-toe is because they are in a severe drought. And for them to gather 12 jars of water, number one, it doesn't say where they got it, but it would have been an extraordinarily difficult and costly act of faith. And probably they did it, the people of Israel did it against their will, but they were sort of afraid of Elijah or something, I don't, I don't know. Or maybe they were hopeful after the, after the Baals had not lit, and had not lit the, their altar on fire. But nevertheless, it's significant, I think, that during this time of drought and famine, they pour all this water, four jars, three times, so twelve, again, for the twelve tribes of Israel, Elijah took the... Uh, wait, not the right place. 
And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So the wood is just soaked. There's water in the, in the moat. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that You are God in Israel, and that I am Your servant, and that I have done all these things at Your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that You, O Lord, are God, and that You have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. That's some hot fire. (laughs) And licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their face and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let none of them escape. And they seized them. And they brought them down and they slaughtered them there. And then rain comes. Rain comes, uh, just a torrential uh, downpour. And what Elijah expects after this showdown at Mount Carmel is that everyone is going to repent and return to the Lord. He's so excited about it. He is on cloud nine, and he gets word that Jezebel says, you're going to be dead by this time tomorrow. Now, I would hope that this great prophet of the Lord says, I'm going to be dead tomorrow. You just see what happened? God is God. You're going to be dead tomorrow. You know, like, if anything, I'm going to stand up to you. But Elijah turns and runs. He is terrified. He is incredibly depressed. Uh, it is, he does not know what to make of the fact that what he expected after this great, incredible event happened, he, he expected this incredible turnaround, and he didn't get it. Now, that will not be the story after our live nativity. We're gonna, it's going to be amazing. But that's, it's just, it's just, that was a long time ago. Uh, but it was, uh, it was very disappointing for him. And he was afraid. And so he runs away. And, um, and even in the, in the fact that there was torrential rain, uh, and, and God did what He said He was going to do, God defeated them. Uh, the great prophet Elijah is also human. And he goes away. In fact, he goes to Mount Horeb. Now, Mount Horeb has another name. Anybody know what that other name for Mount Horeb is? is Sinai. Sinai. That's right. So he goes to Mount Sinai, which is where what happened? What happened on Mount Sinai? The law was given. So this is like a, I mean, it's a long walk, like 40 days. So he goes, walks down into Saudi Arabia from, from uh, Israel. And he came to a cave in Mount Horeb and lodged in it. Now, many have speculated that perhaps this was the same cleft in the rock that Moses stood in when the glory of the Lord passed over him. You remember that? He said, I want to see your glory. And God said, you can't. I'm just going to burn you up, but I'll put my hand over you. get in the cleft of the rock, and I'll, I'll pass by you. And you can see my backside. So he gets to see the backside of God uh, in His glory. And, and as you know, I mean, you probably remember the, the hymn, uh, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, Let Me Hide Myself in Thee, that Jesus is the cleft. You know, He's... Hi. We, um, in a sense, are hidden from the, glory, the consuming fire of God in Christ that we can see the glory of God, but we won't be burned up because He's our cleft. So, He comes to a cave and He lodges in the cave. And behold, the word of the Lord comes to Him and says, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
And this is what Elijah says. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. Remember, this is the northern kingdom and they're the crazies. They've thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. So he is just distraught. He's been walking for a long time. And God says, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. The Lord was not in the wind. So it's like a hurricane or a tornado or something like that. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Behold, there came a voice to him saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, Elijah has stood in this cleft of the rock. And he has seen God's magnificent power, but he has the discernment as a prophet to know that that is not what God is saying. But God is in this mundane breeze. It's a low whisper. That still, small voice is how the King James translates it. It's a, actually, the literal translation is a thin silence. Interesting. We talk about thin places. Uh, it's a place where you go. Some of you have been to Iona and some other places that you call a thin place where um, God is, is very present to you. People have called our, our riverbank a, a thin place. And so... Um, I would hope, again, not only would I hope that the prophet who just saw this miraculous victory would stand up to this one pagan uh, queen, but I would hope that this prophet who um, is one of the greats, that after seeing and hearing from the Lord and being protected from the Lord and fed by the Lord and seeing this, the, hearing the, the still small voice, that he would be transformed. But listen to what he says. When the Lord asked him the same question, what are you doing here, Elijah? This is what he says. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. No change. It is exactly word for word what Elijah said before. Now, I don't know about you. I've been walking with the Lord for a long time. And um, I do not have near the change in my life that I thought 28 years ago that I would have had by now. I still struggle with anger. I still, I mean... Maybe, maybe then if you held, hopefully, if you held me now to me then at 15 or 16 years old, you can see a remarkable sanctification. But, but um, probably it's just because I'm older, right? You know, like it's, um, uh, it is, but I see, I'm so much more aware and I feel like there, the things that I would have, um, would have, de- would have developed in me the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, <laughs> We'd stop right there, right? <laughs> Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and 
the one I hate to um, have, self-control, right? I always, tell, I always tell my kids, you know, I like to sing that. Uh, gentleness and self-control. Shut up, Dad! Stop! <laughs> <laughs> we know! But the truth is, I, I just haven't seen the change in my own life. Now, you might think, well, wait a what are you doing in standing in front of us? You're our priest, right? But I'm not Jesus. Thanks be to God for all of us. And, and so I, I, you know, I just wonder if in your life you've wondered, why, why haven't I changed? Why haven't I, I still have the same struggle? And I want those things in me to change, but I will tell you that my, my perspective on them has changed because those are the ways that, I, that things that remind me how much I need Christ. And if I didn't have that struggle... I, I might forget how much I need Jesus. Sometimes I do forget how much I need Jesus, but, but one of those things will raise its ugly head, and I'll snap at Amy or my kids in a way that, just, that I don't like, or I'll, I don't know what, you know, all sorts of things. And, and I just have to go back and say, have mercy. And his property is always to have mercy. So I look at Elijah and this lack of change in his life, and I look at him with, Incredible thanksgiving to see that even the great prophet Elijah struggled and didn't have the change in his life that you might expect. But what happens is that God is so gracious to him, he doesn't say, Come on, man, what did you didn't you just what have you seen in your life? Which is, I mean, you know, that would have been a fine thing for him to say. Just go and return to your uh, on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, which Damascus is way north of Jerusalem, so it's It's a long journey. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat. Now, Elisha, you know, so there's Elijah, and then there's Elisha, who is sort of his protege and the the heir apparent. He says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not, not kissed him. In other words, I'm still working, Elijah. Just because you don't see it in your own life, and just because you don't have the perspective, does, the, in fact, the work of God is not dependent upon you, Elijah, and your faithfulness and your sanctification. And again, so as your priest, when I look in the mirror and I go, what are you doing with a collar on your neck? I just have to remember that the work of God doesn't depend. I want to serve God. I want to be holy as He is holy. But when I um, come face to face with those you're not Jesus moments, I just thank God that He is working despite me. And you can look in your mirror and you can say, thank God that the work of God is not dependent upon me, but thanks be to God that He's working in me and even by His mercy and grace through me. So everybody stood on the live nativity set uh, this past week and everybody brought their friends. They've got sins. They've got things that need to be forgiven and yet God used them in a mighty way. And who knows what way God is using you in your life. But His work is a privilege to be caught up into but it is not dependent upon you because it is dependent upon the finished work uh, of Jesus. So uh, thanks be to God for that. That's, that's just that's my Story. These two stories, I think, are just amazing, and um, but particularly the the succession of them, where where Elijah should should have seen so much glory and had such confidence, and yet he was just shaken to his core by this threat uh, on his life.
Um, and so what happens then is God uh, calls Elisha, and, um, and then soon after that, uh, Elijah is taken up in his chariot of fire. And so, um, so that's really that. We'll, um, any questions or comments or thoughts or reflections on this story? That God is still working, even though it doesn't look like it is to the prophet. Yes. And if someone like Elijah can have that happen, then we shouldn't be surprised when it happens to us in some of those times. Human nature is a real thing, no doubt. Ellen, you were going to say something? Yeah, I'd say it's a parallel to me to, to Romans in chapter 7, where Paul, who's this powerful apostle, and yet he says, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do do. Yeah. And that we're at war, you know, our spirit's at war with our flesh. And then he ends it with saying, you know, thanks be to God. Yeah. Because it's what he's done for us. And That's so it. if he's so powerful and he's doing things he doesn't want to do, mm-hmm. it gives me comfort, like what you said. That, um, yeah. It reminds me, like you said, of Christ. If you couldn't hear in the back, uh, Ellen referenced Romans chapter 7, where Paul says, um, says the things I want to do, I do not do, and the things I don't want to do, those are the very things that I do. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And the only answer he can give is, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, which he then follows and says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, no condemnation. That's our, our legacy. If you were to flip over to 2 Kings 25, this is the exile. So what you have between uh, Elijah and Ahab, you have just a long line, maybe 18 generations of kings, that is, uh, they're they're essentially faithless with the one exception, Judah, which is um, King Josiah. King Josiah implements a lot of reform. Uh, they, They find the book of Deuteronomy sort of Hidden, dusty in the temple, it's completely lost it, and um, and they institute a bunch of reforms. Josiah dies. The people go right back to their ways because law can't change their hearts, right? And so, what happens? What the prophets have been saying all along is going to happen happens, and the people of Israel are kicked out of Israel. The chosen people that God has said you are given to the promised land. God picks up and takes out of the promised land and puts them in Babylon. In fact, they're not enslaved or um, put in prison. They're just assimilated into Babylonian culture. And in fact, the the king of Israel sits at the table with Nebuchadnezzar and eats with him. And it's stunning, and he seems content to do so. He's probably just glad to have his life, and you know, his head is still on his shoulders. But the goal of that exile, from the Babylonian perspective, was to wipe out the culture of Israel and to um, create, sort of expand the culture of Babylon uh, through those people. Lots and lots to talk about uh, in that regard. But the, the thing to take away is that God's, uh, what God said was going to happen if the people didn't repent happens. 
and they are removed from their inheritance and taken to Babylon. But even there, uh, we, we hear in the, in the Psalms, how can we sing the praise of God in a foreign land? I mean, they're, act, they're crying out to God. God works in their midst. That's, we have Daniel and uh, the lion's den and all this story happens uh, there. Uh, we have um, Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesying about what's going to happen um, when they come back and they stay in uh, exile 70 years. And, um, and the king that Isaiah prophesies is going to happen, he becomes the king uh, 70 years later and releases them back uh, to allow them to come back to Jerusalem. And that's where you get Ezra and Nehemiah. And I think we're going to get into that uh, later. But we're going to stop there and just know that God uh, has... I mean, just think about what a devastating thing it would have been for the people to lose the promised land, the faithless kings, the generation of faithless kings, all moving towards the one true king who is coming tomorrow night for you and me. Actually, he's already come 2,000 years ago. But we're celebrating it tomorrow night. Have a big birthday cake at your house. And, um, and then Christmas morning. Um, so... Uh, that's all. That's what it's for. Uh, it is a just a, a a real. I hope you'll go back and take some time. Maybe count it uh, your New Year's resolution to read through the story of the kings, First and Second Kings. It is really fascinating. Yes, Susie. How come Elijah was taken up and none of the other prophets were? Were they not as worthy? Or? The question is why was Elijah taken up in a chariot of fire? And none of the other prophets were. Um, the only thing I can say is that. God had a special anointing upon him. There's no reason that's given, particularly. Um, there's a really interesting story where Elisha is walking with Elijah, and he um, has his his cloak, I think is what it is, and he and he slap. They're just walking along. They come to a river. He slaps the cloak on the river. It parts. They walk across, and like and like as it's completely nonchalant. I mean, it's just a. But Elisha knows that what's coming. Elisha knows he's leaving, and he's taken up. So. We see the same thing with Melchizedek. We, he's not taken up. We, we doesn't have an end. Uh, uh, we see, um, not Moses, obviously. Um, Enoch. Enoch, yeah, is taken up as well. Long, long, early, early history. But any other questions? Well, I hope you. Uh, if you haven't been to church yet, please come uh, to ten thirty. Please come uh, tomorrow night, four o'clock, seven o'clock, ten thirty or 10.30 on Christmas morning. God bless you.